Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Abdu Murray. Well, good morning. I was uh, just checking to make sure the stairs work, and apparently they do. It's at the test, and uh, I'm happy to say they can withhold me. Um, thank you for having me this morning and letting me share some some, some thoughts with you this morning on this, this Memorial Day weekend. I do hope that you have a very meaningful Memorial Day weekend. Saying Happy Memorial Day is a weird thing. You know, it's not necessarily a time for just barbecues and backyard um, activities and, and, and uh, doing stuff in, in, you know, fixing up stuff in their backyard and doing the hedges and whatever it is. It's a time for the memorial reflection. And I know that um, having heard the music and there's something about bagpipes that has this solemnity to it that just inspires just a, a bit of reflection. And so I hope that those echo in your ears as they do in mine. Uh, thank you so much for that. For that, It's a, a tough thing to come up and follow hearing something like that. So uh, I very much appreciate that. Um, as I speak today, um, the, the topic of my, my, of my the, well, the, the title of my talk is A Waiting World. And I think the world is in fact waiting for something. And it doesn't seem like it is. It seems like it's rushing away from things. It seems like the world is basically set and fixed on. We have a, cor- a set course and, pa- course and path, and we're going to go as hard as we can headlong into that agenda, and we're not waiting for anybody. If you're not part of the train, you're going to be left behind. And so we think the world is not waiting. We think the world is not waiting to hear something good, something amazing, something powerful, something moving, something life-changing, something world-changing. They have their own ideas of what those things might be, and they seem to be leaving I think the gospel in the dust. But can I challenge that? I think the world actually is waiting. I think it doesn't know how to wait. I think the world is fidgety. I think the world is very much like an eight-year-old child who's waiting, either waiting in line for to see the movie they want to see or waiting for the gift they're going to be getting at Christmas or whatever it might be. The world is fidgety. It doesn't know what to do exactly. And with all the social media, with all the power the world actually has, is that that fidgetiness turns into, I think, earthquakes. And so it seems like they're not waiting, but I think there's a smoldering ember of waiting happening underneath what's roiling on top. And it's waiting for, I think, a credible and authentic Christian witness. Now, I think about this idea of the train leaving the station, and it reminds me of uh, a time not too long ago, a few years ago now, I was traveling to India, and uh, I had a layover in an Indian city. Uh, so I was traveling from one Indian city to another Indian city from the U.S., and my stopover in the first Indian city required me. It, it's an unbelievably early time in the morning. It was something like 3 o'clock in the morning when I arrived, but it felt like 3 o'clock in the afternoon because of jet lag, and I wasn't quite sure. I had this whole thing where you're in this dark tube for 13 hours flying over the ocean and flying over the world, and you land, and it feels like 3.30, but it looks like 3 in the morning, and people are acting like it's 3 in the morning, and so you don't know if you're coming or going. And there's that minute, that, 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 that strange cottony feeling in the brain. When you're walking around thinking, where is the lounge? Where is the lounge? Where is the lounge? And the signs are there, and they finally direct you to the lounge, and you walk in, and you don't remember the person you talked to because you can barely see their face. And then you sit down in this chair, and you do that thing when you have that cotton-headed sort of feeling where you just kind of stare. And you're not looking at anything. You're not thinking about anything. I mean, I think the most profound thought in my head was, is there food in this place? Or something like that. I don't even know what I was thinking, but there I was, sort of staring into nothing. And then I saw that I was staring at a TV. I wasn't watching it, I was just staring at it. But something started to catch my eye. And it was, turns out it was a documentary, it was was, or some kind of a, a news special or something on the train system in India. And if you've ever seen how the trains work in India, from the rural areas back into the urban areas where people are trying to get to work, it is remarkable. When you look at the way in which the throngs of people 
Load the train platforms. It's an absolute sea of humanity. And the minute the train comes up in the morning, and these folks all have to get to their jobs, and if they don't get to their jobs, they're not going to work that day. If they don't work that day, they might get fired, or they'll get no wages for that day. And as the train comes in and the doors open up, the sea of humanity turns into a river of humanity that floods into this thing. And it is thousands of people per train car, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people flooding the train. And it is irresistible, the surge. The surge is irresistible. You cannot resist it. If you were in the middle, you were going to be trampled to death. But the problem is the trains don't fit everybody. And so in the mad throng of people trying to get in, what's going on is people are trying to get in, but they know that if I don't push my way in, I'll be left behind. And maybe the next train will come. But the problem with that is, is that, of course, the platform will get filled with even more people for the second train to come. It's going to the same place, but now you're with desperate people. And so you're always trying to get on the train. And so people don't necessarily always get in the train. Sometimes they have to get on the train. And if you look at the videos and you look at the, the, the photos of it, you'll see people hanging to the side of the train, sitting on top of the train. Sometimes a family will sit on top of the train, and this thing is rocketing to the next destination. And it's not uncommon for someone to die on their way to work just because they need to get there. The reason I bring this up is because one of the things I saw on this special was there was a person who was trying to get on the train and then wasn't able to get on the train, but then was trying to actually later on find out, uh, come back, and they had a video of this person trying to, get, trying to come back, and because of the throng of people in the train, they couldn't get out. And so they kept missing their stop and missing their stop. And this poor person was like five and six and seven stops from where they were supposed to be because the surge was so strong. Because as they, people were getting off of the train, others were trying to get on the train, and this person could not find their way, fight their way off of the train because of the surge coming towards them. And so they found themselves five and six stops away, unable to actually get to their intended destination. I think about this and I look at the social surge we're seeing today now, where there's so much of a surge away, I think, away from the Christian message. Where the social surge is, get off of the train of Christianity as fast as you possibly can, because this train is going nowhere, we hate this train, we want to get off of this train. Now, I'm not saying they hate the train because they hate the gospel, although that's a part of the human, human condition. I think it's they're getting away from Christianity. They're forcing their way off of the train and trying to get everybody to go with them. And so if you're trying to get on, good luck with that. Because there's a, there's a social surge that says, we're getting off, you come with us. There's other trains and better trains to get on. That's what I think is happening. That's, why, that's what I think it means, if I'm going to illustrate something, what it means to be in a post-Christian world. We've been talking about this word for quite some time in, in, in the sort of social milieu and the way people talk about what influence Christianity has on the world. And we talk about this post-Christian world. What do we mean? This is exactly what we mean, is that people are surging away from the Christian message. And if you stand and you try to say, no, wait, this is the right train to get on, they don't want to hear it. They want you to come with them. In other words, a world is post-Christian when Christianity has lost its social influence. A world is post-Christian when Christianity has lost its social influence. Now, how has this happened? I think it's happened because we've equated Christianity or the message of the, of the, of the Christian faith, specifically evangelical Christianity, with politics, with right-wing politics or uh, whatever thing that might sound like a bad thing in the world is. We've sort of equated it with this and with, with prejudices of every kind. That's what's happened, and it's been building for quite some time now. A lot of it's unfair. Some of it is deserved. Some of it is not fair in terms of the way Christians maybe have acted in terms of Christendom as opposed to the Christian message. So this is what's happened now, is there's an equation of the Christian message with things either highly political, highly social, or in some ways highly prejudicial. And it becomes increasingly hard when this surge comes forward to say, but wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. That's not the message. But they've been seeing that message, at least hearing it in some form, whether it's fair or not, for quite some time. And the temptation, the temptation when you're faced with that, if you're a Christian and you firmly believe in this gospel message and its transformative power, the temptation 
is to not resist the social surge by yourself. It's to close ranks. Now that's a natural and a good thing. You want to close ranks and find people who are of a like mind who say, how do we resist this? How can we actually deal with the social surge that's going away from the Christian message? But the problem is, is that when we close ranks, the very natural thing for a human being to do is to want to defend and say, either you've got it wrong or that's not really the message or not all Christians or whatever it might be. And we commit to an us versus them mentality. And it's a natural thing for humans to do. Whenever you face opposition, you find people of like mind and you say, we are us and they are them. That's natural. But then you read the words in scripture. When you see the first century and the way in which the church was birthed in an extremely hostile political environment, in an extremely hostile religious environment, where there was all kinds of pluralism of different political views and different, poli- different religious beliefs, they were no less pluralistic in the first century than we are now. Yes, there's all kinds of religions that are vying for your attention and all kinds of non-religions that are vying for your attention. But when you look at the Roman Empire, what they did, one of the, one of the things that they did okay was they let people believe what they wanted to believe as long as it didn't interfere with state business. So you had a multiplicity of different faiths, especially as the church was growing and spreading into the East, into Asia, and also into the West in Europe and into Africa. So they were dealing with the same issues we were dealing with today. They were dealing with a lot of the same political hostilities we're dealing with today. And yet Paul writes in Romans, he doesn't write, let's circle the wagons, make sure that no one can penetrate the defenses, let's keep the kids as safe as possible and not send them out into the world to change the world. No, this is what he says, Romans chapter 15, verses 20 to 21. He says, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is a challenge. This is a challenge. Because he has made it his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest he build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, he's so eager for this, that those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, I've been asked this question often. Almost every single time I speak, whether it's at a a, a religious uh, venue or it's at a secular venue, when someone comes to the microphone, at some point someone's going to ask me, what about those who've never heard of the gospel? If the gospel is the sole means of Jesus' death on the cross and accepting what he did for us is the sole means of salvation, how is it fair that someone who's never had a chance to hear the gospel could possibly can be consigned to a hell that they don't know how to avoid? That seems to be the fair question, and I understand the question, and it's good as far as it goes, and I get it. But here's the thing, is that then we get anxious because what we're thinking they mean is, and they usually do mean this, but what we think is going on here is, what about those people who are living in some faraway land for whom no missionary has touched the soil of their country when they've never actually heard this gospel message? Can I challenge this? Because what I think is happening with the social surge that we're seeing is that we think of the third world in terms of a world where people have never heard the gospel. Can I challenge this? I've been on so many different places in this country, in North America, whether in Canada or the U.S. where I've been on secular campuses where I can tell that the person who's listening to me has never heard the gospel. They've either never heard the actual proclamation of what the good news actually is. They've heard a politicized version or a caricature based by Hollywood. You know, Hollywood is the terrible theologians, by the way. (laughs) And so you see this and then you think that's Christianity. You watch some end of the world movie and somehow there's a religious element to it and that must be Christianity because the guy is wearing a collar and he's got a cross in his hand. That must be Christianity when it's not. So they either see a caricature of it or they see a politicized version of it or they've never heard it at all. Worse yet, I think that oftentimes because of the social surge away from the Christian message, it's those who are committed to Christ and who are committed to living out their faith don't have necessarily the opportunity or the chance to show what a lived faith looks like. So my question, the deeper question I have for myself is not, what about those who have never heard in some faraway land that I have to get on a plane to go see? What about those who have never heard, never understood, and never seen the gospel lived out who are 10 feet from me? 
uh, as the foundations are being eroded, let me suggest that we are not building on someone else's foundation if you start to preach here. If you find yourself needing to evangelize your neighbor, don't take Romans chapter 15 as a call to just go overseas. Although, please, if you're called, please go. Don't take it as that. Don't take it as that. Well, the gospel is a, this is a gospel-saturated culture. Now, we still are a religious culture, by the way. It was uh, Sun, Ra, uh, Sun Chen Ra who pointed out that this idea that the church is dying in America is a myth, especially when you consider African-Americans and those of color. The church is thriving in those communities. It's building. It's mostly where it's declining is sort of white mainline Protestant denominations. That's where it's actually starting to die. But not in the, in, in the ethnic communities. It's actually starting to thrive. You look at the global south. If you look at the global south and you see the statistics, I'll get it out. The statistics of the growth of Christianity in the global south, whether it's South America or Sub-Saharan Africa or in the east, you'll see that there's a remarkable surge of the gospel message in people who are committing their lives to Christ, even in the face of death. And so we think it's on the decline. That is because we have a very myopic view of what the church is all about. So there's a reason for hope. This is growing in the world. It's actually growing in the world. I highly recommend to your reading a book called The Triumph of Christianity by Rodney Stark, where he talks about this. But why are we starting to feel the surge here in the West, in the so-called first world? Why is it that evangelism seems so hard, where we feel like we're building on someone else's foundation, when the reality is the foundation has been eroded for quite some time, we need to rebuild the foundation? Why does it seem so hard? It's because I think there's two things going on. The first one is this, is that as we see the influence waning, there is a natural tendency to be fearful that our influence is waning. And we're holding on to it in a possessive sense, is that we have to get the word out more often and we have to uh, somehow gussy the message up to make it more relevant to people and maybe even you know, compromise a couple things on our core convictions to make it more palatable to the culture because the culture is pretty hostile right now. And so there's that whole thing. We have to not lose people at the door by making sure that more people feel welcome and come and invited and all that. And so we have an open, willing message. But then the problem is, in some places, certainly not here, but in some places, it's, well, maybe we should, you know, water down a few things. And what's interesting about that is when you look at the actual stats on that, you find out that the, the, the places where the gospel is watered down is the places where the attendance is dying. But where it's preached, where the Bible is actually taught, preached, the difficult passages are actually waded through, and we wrestle with them together as a corporate community, and we have good expository preaching, like in this place, where you find this happening week to week, those places are not dying. They're either sustaining or they're growing in the face of the social surge. But I think there is a real fear that if we lose, for lack of a better word, followers, and this word is a, a big word now. Followers mean something different than it used to mean. And now it means the number of people who like your Instagram or the number of people who are following you on Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or whatever other thing that I don't even know about anymore because I'm too old to know uh, is happening. But you know what's funny? You look at Jesus and you look at how he was so influential. Three years. You, know, you understand this? Three years. 900 and something, 1,000 days or so of public ministry. That's it. And he managed to influence the whole world for millennia afterwards. He wasn't a flash in the pan, although he was literally walking the earth for a thousand or so days in terms of his public ministry. Obviously, he lived for a lot longer than that. He started his ministry around 30 years old. But that's amazing that he could do that. And you know what he did? How he did it? He didn't worry about being popular. You look at Jesus in John chapter 6. Now we have the various stories throughout the, 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 the Gospels of the feeding of the 5,000. 
And John goes into a, a little bit more of a subtlety of the spiritual condition of those who are looking for the food. And maybe you've heard this before, but I think it bears repeating. And I'll just sort of race through the story, if you don't mind. So Jesus feeds 5,000 people who are coming to listen to him. And it's way more than 5,000 because it was just the men who were counted among the 5,000. It was, it was their wives and their children as well. So we're talking way more than 5,000 people. And they have this meager offering, this insufficient offering of fish and loaves that barely could feed one person, let alone thousands more. And of course, Jesus does the miraculous and he multiplies the fish and the bread so that everyone has their fill. And in fact, there's stuff left over at the end of the whole thing. Now, what's interesting is when you read this story and you see this miracle and everyone kind of knows this miracle has happened, is that Jesus attracts quite a following. The following who are there, who are the thousands who are there, are following him. And doubtless, that story circulates pretty quick. And thousands more probably start to surge towards Jesus and want to follow him as well. And they begin to look for him, and he goes to various places and all this, and then they finally catch up to him. And then if you read the whole of John chapter 6, I highly recommend you read the whole of John chapter 6, because what you'll see is this somewhat frustrating dialogue where Jesus is talking to those who have come now. They found him, and they, they keep on saying, can you give us more bread? Can you give us more bread? Can you give us more stuff? He basically says to them, and he doesn't say it in a condemning way. Read it. Read it now. When you go back and read John chapter 6, and I would urge you to do so, read it now with the lens of this, that Jesus has given them something. He's proclaimed that he will meet your physical needs. But he's here to meet your spiritual needs even more. And that's the important thing. And you see the dialogue back and forth. And what ends up happening is that the people are actually trying to rationalize Jesus into doing more parlor tricks for them. Give us more stuff. They say, Moses, you know, he, commanded, he, he gave us manna in the wilderness. Don't you want to be like Moses? Aren't you a good prophet? Aren't you sent from God? You know, you should give us more bread, more stuff. We want to eat. They're trying, to ration, they're trying to actually out-scripture Jesus, which is hilarious. Um, and he keeps telling them, don't you get it? The people who ate the manna are dead. I'm giving you bread that will give you life. And they don't want it. They don't want it. They want stuff. And you know what happens? He does not compromise his message. He does not give them what they want. He tells them what they need, and they leave him because of it. He loses his followers. But in common parlance, he said something that got him canceled. And he looks to his disciples and he says, are you also going to walk away? And Peter gets the message. He got it. He heard it. He heard about life. He heard about bread. He heard about all these metaphors. And he gets it. And he says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. He's not interested in maintaining his influence. He's interested in telling you what you need to hear. You see, the world is careening into either apathy, that there's no better, that things are not going to get better, and so we get angry, or we have these agendas that we're driven, we're all protesting things constantly, we're upset about stuff, and there's some stuff we should be upset about. There really is. But our concern as, as believers who are trying to give the world a message that's worth actually hearing. It's not that the church's political or even social influence is somehow gone in the first world. It's that the gospel message's needfulness is obscured by our desire to be popular or by the culture's desire to have their agenda sort of coddled. Did you get this? This is important. It's not, we should not be concerned that the Christian influence, that we're post-Christian in the sense that our influence is dying, we should be concerned that the needfulness of the gospel, its absolute necessity, is being obscured by all the stuff either the church is doing or all the stuff the culture is trying to get the church to do. We need that message once again. We need to obviously listen to the needs of the culture, we obviously need to listen to the hurts and the pains that are going on out there, but not because we want to be liked, but because we want to help. We need that. See, the pendular swing happens over and over again. The church either accommodates the culture and compromises, or we clobber the culture 
by saying we're not going to compromise and we don't even care if you come to our doors. Do you see the, the pendular swing there? Compromise or clobber? Maybe the middle ground, maybe the third way is care for the culture. This is a tricky thing to do because listening to someone's hurts, especially when their hurts come and there's a part of the whole story where you're not quite sure you totally agree with it, or maybe it's even antithetical to the Christian faith, this becomes difficult because how do you tell someone you care while you disagree? You can, the world's trying to tell you you can't, but you can, you can in fact, and we have, we have in fact done it. So what's the deal? I think the reason why this is so important is because as the world looks and sees the problems in the world and they look, and this is not fair, but they look at the church and they say, the church almost looks nothing different than the world itself. So how could their message actually be life-changing? There's a sort of a despair that sets into this whole thing. So I think of this secular song that I heard on the radio. It's by a band called Cage the Elephant. Forgive me if you don't like rock music, but I'm gonna quote, the, I'm not gonna sing it for you, you'll be happy to know. But the song is uh, Ain't No Rest for the Wicked. And it tells the story of a guy who's walking through basically this day, and he comes across people who are living terrible lives, who have subjected themselves to horrible things in their own life, and all they do is spout off cliches when he says, how did you come to this position? How did you come to this place? He says, I was walking down the street when out of the corner of my eye, I saw a pretty little thing approaching me. She said, I've never seen a man who looks so all alone. Oh, could you use a little company? If you pay the right price, your evening will be nice. and You can go and send me on my way. I said, you're such a sweet little young thing. Why do you do this to yourself? She looked at me, and this is what she said. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. Oh, no, I can't slow down. I can't hold back, though you know I wish I could. Oh, there ain't no rest for the wicked until, you close our, until we close our eyes for good. Not even 15 minutes later, I'm still walking down the street when I saw the shadow of a man creep up out of sight. And then he swept up from behind. He put a gun up to my head. He made it clear he wasn't looking for a fight. He said, give me all you got. I want your money, not your life. But if you try to make a move, I won't think twice. I told him, you can have my cash, but first you know I got to ask, what made you want to live this kind of life? He said, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. Ain't nothing in this world for free. Then later on, he says this. Well, now a couple hours passed and I was sitting in my house. The day was winding down and coming to an end. And so I turned on the TV and I flipped over to the news and what I saw, I almost couldn't comprehend. I saw a preacher man in cuffs. He'd taken money from the church. He'd stuffed his bank with righteous dollar bills. But even still, I can't say much because I know we're all the same. Oh yes, we all seek out to satisfy those thrills. You know, there ain't no rest for the wicked. Money don't grow on trees. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. Oh no, we can't slow down. We can't hold back, though you know we wish we could. No, there ain't no rest for the wicked until we close our eyes for good. That song, to me, I don't know what his intention was when he wrote it, but it signals the death of hope. The death of hope. Then I think of another song. It's from a movie called The Prince of Egypt. Maybe you've seen this movie. It's an animated movie that tells the story of Moses and the God's liberation of the Israelites from their, from their bondage, hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt. And it's got musical numbers to it as well. And there's a song called There Can Be Miracles. And there's this line from this song um, where the, the singer asks this, or says this, in this time of fear, when prayer so often proves in vain, hope seems like the summer birds too quickly flown away. In this time of fear, when prayer so often proves in vain, hope seems like the summer birds too quickly flown away. And all you have to think about when you hear this song about there ain't no west for the wicked, and you hear this lyric about prayer so often proves in vain and hope flies away like the birds, is you have to turn on the news and think about what happened in Uvalde, Texas. You know, we use this word I remember seeing a news story, and a couple of news stories had said, the unimaginable has happened in Uvalde. 19 kids, a couple of adults, lost their lives. Kids, like, I mean, I don't mean teenage kids, I mean elementary school kids. And it shocks the conscience, and we wake up and we say, my goodness, 
How can there be such evil in the world? It's unimaginable. But then you ask the question, and there were some people who took this, this folks to task and say, unimaginable? What are you talking about? It happened 10 years ago in Sandy Hook, at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, where even more children actually lost their lives. Unimaginable? And so people will chide them and say, when you say unimaginable, what you really mean is it's so rare, you know, we shouldn't do anything about it. It's a fluke. It's not a fluke. There's a lot of issues here. Now, I don't pretend to get political about this in the slightest bit. You can rest assured. And if you send me an email, I won't respond to it. Um, but what I can say is this. I don't care what your politics are. That is something you hate. Amen. Something you absolutely hate. And we want to see it changed. But that unimaginable word, can I just say that there's a redeeming, a redeeming nature to using the word unimaginable? It's not flippant. It's not saying it's unimaginable as if, what? We caught off, caught off guard. No, no. I think there's something special about using this word unimaginable because it signals hope. Strangely enough, if we call it unimaginable, the reason why those words come out, that's reactive language. And the, way, the reason why it's reactive is because we can't comprehend that we live in a world that's still like this. It should be unimaginable. It ought to be unimaginable. And whenever you use should, and whenever you use ought, and what you're saying is you're not describing what is. You're describing what you hope to be like. The world ought to have this kind of thing be unimaginable. It should. And when you use ought and should, you're talking about morality. When you're talking about morality, the only hope in this world for a moral world where things ought to be and should be a certain way is if someone who is transcendent, the source of all morality, says it should and ought to be this way, and it can't be us. It's unimaginable to me that human beings are the source of what's good and moral. If anything about Uvalde has struck us, and there's so many things that have, it's that the idea that we can be the arbiters of what's good and moral without God is unimaginable. Where does the hope come from? And yet hope persists because the gospel message is good news. It's the news that yes, there's something inherently broken in the human condition. Me, you, everyone. And yet there's something inherently valuable about the human being that God so values that he's willing to send his son to pay a price that our evil deserves, but that we can't afford to pay without being separated from God. And so that message is that Jesus has paid that price for us because we're either going to stand in front of him on our own works or we're going to stand in front of him looking like his son. It's up to us in that, sen in that sense to pick which one. And if you pick you, you're going to get what you deserve because there ain't no rest for the wicked. There never will be rest for the wicked unless you take on his righteousness. That is good news because it does not depend on you. We need to preach this message. You know, there's an interesting follow-up to the phrase in, 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 the, in that song from the Prince of Egypt, where the song says, in this time of fear, where prayer so often proves in vain, hope seems like the summer birds too quickly flown away. The person who's singing that song is singing that song after God has liberated Israel the Israelites from the bondage of the Egyptians. And the next line is this, but now I'm standing here with heart so full, I can't explain, seeking faith and speaking words I never thought I'd say. That is hope because despite hundreds of years of despair, God can move and God does move. And then we can find a world, a culture that is seeking faith and speaking words maybe they never thought they'd say. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're someone who's sitting in these seats right now or watching online, whatever it might be, and you can recall a time when you would never have ever darkened the door of a church, when you never would have cracked open a Bible, when you never would have closed your eyes or bowed your head to pray, and now you're standing here seeking faith and speaking words you never thought you'd say. 
there are plenty of people out there who need this message. Now I'm gonna race through a couple of things, friends, because I've gone on longer than I thought I was going to. It's gonna be this. It is no longer the case that the Christian faith is boring to the culture. They have a reaction to it. It was something in the 80s and the 90s maybe where it was fashionable to say you were a Christian even if you didn't mean it. You could be a sort of cultural Christian or a nominal Christian or a Christer, you know, Christmas and Easter person. Um, you could be this kind of person and you, it was okay and, and the Christian message was, oh yeah, yeah, that's the faith of my parents and all that. Well, that's gone. That's over because it's no longer assumed to be true, authoritative, or even good. It's not assumed that way anymore. And so if you identify as a Christian, there could be a reaction to that. This is actually in one sense, and I know it's tough to hear, but in one sense, this is a good thing because the society is no longer bored. They no longer yawn when you start to say John 3.16 or whatever else you might say from the scriptures. They're no longer bored by it. Now, they will shout at you and they will yell at you. But at some point, if we wait, if we give a, a, a chance to actually be heard, even though it's very tough, and you listen to the angst and the reasons for the angst that's in the culture, and then you wait for the moment and you pray and you think of what the word actually has to say and what Jesus actually has to say, to this culture, at that particular moment, you might have a shocking impact on somebody because what they expect to come out of your mouth is hatred and prejudice and bile. And what they hear coming out of your mouth is understanding and love and concern. Yes. Amen. You know, because the culture starts to think, used to think, Religion is just this relegated thing based on where you were born. You know, and I get this question all the time. You know, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, Abdul, you'd be a Muslim. That's hilarious because I was born here and I was a Muslim. Um, you know, if you were born in, you know, uh, thus and such a country, you would be a Hindu because you were born in, a, in an Indian country. You would be, you know, in India, you'd be a Hindu and all that. And so Richard Dawkins and all these famous atheists have said this, is that religion is more of a, a, a product of culture, not a product of truth. And so, you know, you happen to be this thing because you happen to be born within this context. You happen to be born into a Christian family. And so 99% of the time you become, you stay what you are. Of course, that's interesting because that blade has two edges to it, you know. If you were to talk to an atheist and say, you know, you're an atheist because you were raised in an atheistic country, not because atheism is true, just because you happen to be raised in an atheist family. Now what? You said, I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian family. You're an atheist. You were born in an atheist family. Okay. Where do we go from here? See, that commits what's called the genetic fallacy. The genetic fallacy is the fallacy that something's truth is determined by how someone got there. That's not how you determine truth. You determine truth by whether or not it actually has any evidence for it. And so the culture thinks this. You're a Christian because you were raised that way, and of course you're indoctrinated now by the various news networks you listen to or whatever it might be. And so we have this culture that dismisses it or gets angry at it because it's not really true. There's nothing really to offer us. It's just relegated to this cultural phenomenon. But you know what's interesting? I remember I was at a university uh, in Canada years ago and a young man walked up to the microphone. He's an Indian man. And he said this, okay, we're in Canada. He has an Indian accent. He's um, either the son of immigrants or he's an immigrant himself. And he says, if God wanted me to be a Christian, why did he put me in a Hindu family? It's an interesting question. You know, and I said, you know, the first thing I thought of was like, you know, God doesn't want you to walk around with a label. He doesn't care if you label yourself Christian. What he wants you to do is know his son. Whatever label gets attached to that, I, I, I kind of don't care. What I care about is whether or not God wants you to know his son. So but it's an interesting question you ask. I'm not even sure you know who you asked. Because just now, you said, if God wants me to be a Hindu, why did he put me, sorry, wants me to be a Christian, why did he put me into a Hindu family? You're asking someone who was raised in a non-Christian home, and here I am now, a follower of Christ, after years of searching, because the evidence was actually there. So the question I think you ought to be asking yourself, not is, if God wanted me to be a Christian, why did he place me in a Hindu home? Maybe the question you should ask is, why did God allow circumstances to happen such that you actually happen to be in a country like Canada that allows freedom of religion where you could ask that very question, come and hear people who were allowed to convert away from their faith and so that you could actually hear the gospel. Maybe it's not that God has placed you into a Hindu family. Maybe it's that God put you at that microphone.
And you look at it, you look at Acts chapter 17, verses 26 to 28. And I think about this young man, what was going on with him. And Paul talking to the cultural elite, talking to the philosophers of his day, says that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. God has placed us in various places. He's determined these places so that we might feel around for him, although he's not far from any one of us. So here comes this young man from India, and he's standing at this microphone at a university in Canada, and he has been searching. He got the courage up to ask a question in the middle of this large crowd of people, to ask a question about how do we actually search for the truth? And he is the living embodiment of the idea that Paul gives here to the Areopagites, he basically says, God has determined all these things so that you can feel around for him. And here's this young man feeling around for him. And he's talking to somebody who wasn't a Christian, who was born in a non-Christian home, a religiously different home. And he wants to hear the message now. God is providing people in your life in surprising ways to hear the message. They might not convert right there on the couch. You might not have a close the deal kind of a moment, but you might have a seed planting moment, a watering moment. You have a gardening moment. He has planted them here. You see, the objections have been answered. You know, I look at um, what happened with the, uh, the leak about the, uh, the opinion, the Dobbs opinion that's going to, uh, Supreme Court opinion that's going to presumably overturn Roe versus Wade. And all the hype and the fear are over that, and now we're talking about abortion quite a bit. And one of the responses from uh, pro-abortion activists and, and pro-choice folks is, um, this is all religious hokum. This whole pro-life pro thing, it's all religious hokum. We can't, give me a non-religious point of view. This is all just based on religion and you're trying to enforce your religion through the state on us and that kind of thing. And the implication here is that religious ideas don't have actual weight anymore. It's gotta be a secular idea. It can't be a religious idea. It's gotta be a secular idea because religion is biased. It's based on where you were born or some preference you have or some indoctrination you, you, you were given when you were a kid. But secular, that's not indoctrination at all. That's as fair as it can possibly be. It's interesting. I think that that's not exactly how it works. But the reality is this, okay? When you look at the most influential thinkers of the past hundred years, many of them will tell you that it is the spiritual that informs the secular. So the idea that we have to divorce ourselves from anything spiritual, especially anything Christian, is somehow foreign to the greatest thinkers of the past 100, 200 years. They didn't see it as just religious hokum that's based on indoctrination. They saw something based on the evidence of the way the world is actually created, and they said there's gotta be something behind this, something more than just that we can think of. Here's the words of Einstein. Obviously, the world's most famous scientist, in any culture, he was asked this question. Here's a, this comes from, uh, by the way, Walter Isaacson's biography on Einstein. A young girl asked Einstein if scientists pray, and Einstein said this, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. Now, Einstein wasn't a Christian, and he had a lot to say about organized religion. He was not a huge fan. But he did see something. This brilliant man saw he needed to be humble before, not just the power of gravity or the you know, subatomic weak forces and all that. He wasn't talking about that. He was saying there's something behind all this. And he says this again, I'm not an atheist. The problem involved is far too vast for our limited minds. We are in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It does not know how. 
It does not understand the languages in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. We see the universe marvelously arranged and obeying certain laws, but only dimly understand these laws. Now, these quotes, by the way, a great book uh, by uh, Gavin Ortland. Um, he arranges these as well. It's called Why God Makes Sense of a World That Doesn't. It's a beautiful book, wonderful book. I highly recommend it. But here's my point in quoting Einstein on this. He is saying that the science reveals something greater than the physical world. And yet the critics are saying, let's get rid of the spiritual world so we, can own, so we can fully understand the physical world. And he's saying, you can't do that. That is the opposite of humility. And so the Christian message, I say this because the Christian message has more to offer us than simply how the world is arranged, although it's, it offers us that as well. It offers us about how the world ought to be arranged. How things ought to be. And that message is what the world is waiting to hear. You know, it was Matthew Paris, an atheist, who made a statement some time ago. I'm going to read it for you, and then I'll finish with just one more quote. Matthew Paris says this in an article called Why Africa Needs Christianity. He's an atheist now, remember this. He said, before Christmas I returned after 45 years to the country that as a boy I knew as Niazaland. Today it's Malawi. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. And he says this, as a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It is a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. That same song from the Prince of Egypt says, though hope is frail, it's hard to kill. Do you know why it's hard to kill? Because our hope is based on the one who is impossible to kill. He died on a cross to pay my debt. He rose from the dead to prove he could do it. And he lives forever and ever. Your and my hope is not dependent upon how good did you preach or <clears throat> how many answers you have at the right moment, although I recommend studying as much as you can and hearing from people as much as you can so you can know what the questions is they're asking. The hope of this world, and we sang about it, is based on this gospel message that we so desperately need a Savior who's not us to save us from us. But we're so enamored with ourselves, and yet we write songs like there ain't no rest for the wicked because we recognize we can't be our own savior. We can't do it. Leonard Ravenhill said it so beautifully. The world is not waiting for a new definition of the gospel, but for a new demonstration of the gospel's power. We are not looking for a new definition. We are looking for a new demonstration. That's upon you and me. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. That's the last stanza of Amazing Grace. Three songs I've shared with you. One is hopeless. One is hopeful. The other one is the consummation of hope. When we've been there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we had first begun.
If you're a believer in Christ and you've given your life to him, there's a world that is waiting to hear that. Not only to hear it, but to see it lived out. Not only to see it lived out, but then to find a reason to cling to it. Not only to find a reason to cling to it, but then to embrace it as true. So that when you're standing there, 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, you will be standing next to somebody who has no less days to sing God's praise than when they had first begun. And if you're not a Christian, or you don't know if you've really given your, your life to this message, to this person, this person of Christ, can I tell you that the hope you've been looking for has been so elusive and graspy like smoke? Because it hasn't been given flesh. It is God, the second person of the Trinity, God who is spirit, who took on flesh, the solidity of that, so that you can know him and fellowship with him and be in communion with the one who made everything. If you don't know him, I'm going to pray that you actually come to know him. If you're online and you don't know him or you know somebody who doesn't know him or if you've strayed off into a world where you say there ain't no rest for the wicked and money don't grow on trees and you spout off the cliches trying to placate your own sense of hopelessness, Jesus is the ultimate anti-cliche. It was on his tree that hope grows. Let's bow our heads. Father, what an amazing thing to call you, Father. Lord, this is a world that is waiting. And some of us in this room are waiting. And some of us online are waiting for a glimmer or a sign of hope. 2,000 years ago, you gave us the greatest sense of hope there could ever be. Not only did you die on a cross, but a tomb that you were supposed to stay in, you refused to be bound by. And you offered hope. You offered peace to your disciples. You urged Paul to make it his ambition to preach the gospel to those who have never heard or those who think they've heard but have never understood. Lord, we have to build on your foundation, but the foundation around us has crumbled and so we need to rebuild it. I pray, Lord, for those who know you to sense this hope and the credibility and the power of this message and want to reach out to a world that desperately needs it but rejects its very existence. I also pray, Lord, for those who maybe have not seen hope in a long time to see it once again here and that their time of waiting is over and that hope, though frail, is hard to kill. Thank you for your son. Thank you for this day. Thank you for those who have sacrificed their lives that we can even stand here in the first place. We thank you ultimately for your son who sacrificed his life so that we can stand before you and look like him. In his name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much.